Thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, today we're speaking with Dr. Barry Iden on setting up a multi-specialty clinic and practicing with your wife on the OI show. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Optometric Insight Show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and feel free to leave any comments and check out the show notes for additional resources. Today, we're here with uh, Barry Iden. Barry uh, practices in Chicago. Barry needs little introduction, but some of you that are in our, our tribe uh, have yet to learn about Barry. I've learned so much from Barry, and Mila has too, about contact lenses, how to practice better. Barry has this very unique perspective on keratoconus and has been a really, really good uh, resource for many of us in, in the world. But He's one of those people that you, the more you learn about him, he's like an onion. You just peel back all of these layers, his knowledge in myopia management and dry eye. And he's one of the most technologically advanced eye care providers in the United States. And surprisingly, kind of like me, he's got uh, a wife that he works for in practice. He and his wife work together in practice. She's got a, a subspecialty as well. Um, so Barry's kind of the whole package, and I was really excited that he accepted our invitation to be on the Optometric Insights show and uh, to learn a little bit more from Barry. So Barry, thank you for joining us today for the OI show. David, it's such a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's, it's exciting to see communication the way that we're doing. I guess it all came out of COVID, but we've got to take good from the bad, and uh, this right. is an example of something wonderful coming out of a challenging time. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think you and I can speak to this is I've learned so much from you at trade shows, not during CE and just how you're doing things in your practice. We can't do that right now, right? We're not able to. So this is the, this is the virtual opportunity of the, uh, of the sitting at a bar and having a drink and hanging out over a coffee and, and getting to know what's happening in practice. Yeah. I hope that things can change soon. I'm very optimistic, and I miss you and all of our friends that uh, have become such an important part of my life. Likewise, likewise, my man. So, can you share with us a little bit about uh, about what you do on a monthly basis? I don't want to say on a daily basis because you're 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 widespread with uh, lecturing, consulting, writing. Uh, and 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 practice. So tell me a little bit about who you are and what things you're involved with. Yeah, that's great. I'd be happy to. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, under normal circumstances, every day is a bit different. Um, you know, I am in full-time private practice, but I do speak, I do consult just like you do, um, and do a lot of teaching as well. And all of those things together as well as some research projects, really define who I am professionally. And uh, without any of the elements, I just don't think I'd be as satisfied as I, as I am right now. I always thought to myself, how could I ever just be in an exam room, you know, five days a week, uh, seven hours a day, yeah. you know, and take two weeks off or three weeks off on a vacation. I don't think I could do it. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't fit the way that I am built and I know you are built the same way. So basically we're at the office. Anytime that I'm in town, I'm at the office five days a week. Uh, but with all the traveling that hopefully will resume pretty soon, 
we're out uh, doing consulting, we're out at meetings and lecturing. Um, and I also spend a lot of the time, we have interns as you do and residents who come through the office. Uh, and that's a critical part of uh, what I do as well. I'm just, I started off in education actually after my residency, I was on staff at SUNY Optometry for a few years and I've always wanted and have been fortunate enough to maintain that educational component within the professional practice. Mm -hmm. So Barry, I think what, what I'd like to speak to today with you about is, uh, is the specialty component of practice. So uh, you do comprehensive eye exams every day that you're with patients, but yet we know you as a specialty doctor. How, how did your practice kind of evolve into what it is? Did, did you buy a practice? Did you start cold? Right. Take us back to the beginning and how this evolution to where you are today kind of started. Sure. Well, it, it surely takes me back to my days after residency. And I think residency kind of created a mindset for me in terms of uh, the type of practice I'd always want to be in. And then going into education for those few years and seeing how important it is to keep up, be with the latest technologies, and then work with students who are constantly asking you questions to keep you on your toes. And I'll remember during my last year at SUNY before coming into private practice, sitting down and kind of coming up with a um, a wish list or kind of a vision for the kind of practice I always would want. And I wrote it on a piece of paper and I talked about the fact that I wanted a multi-specialty practice with associates that I knew I couldn't keep up with everything. There's no way, especially today, right. that any of us could keep up with all the areas to the degree that we'd want to. So having associates and partners or whatever the case may be, that's the key in everybody having their subspecialty. So when we decided to leave New York, my wife is from Chicago here. Uh, we, she wanted to come back home. Um, I was able to connect with a wonderful solo practitioner in a relatively small practice, very basic, basic contact lens, refraction, optical dispensary. But when we got together and he stayed on for a little under two years, and then I took over and he retired, um, we sort of formulated the practice into the way we wanted. We started bringing new technologies in um, and we started introducing more advanced care, more advanced contact lens care. Of course, I introduced all the ocular disease aspects, which this gentleman, of course, was never trained to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then when he retired, I started bringing in other associates. My wife joined in the practice and she's a low vision diplomate at the academy and she was doing low vision work. I brought in other associates over the years. So right now, if you look at the way we are, um, yeah. we have a number of ODs, most of them with subspecialties. I would consider myself, you know, advanced contact lenses, ocular surface disease, more anterior segment disease, but I do comprehensive eye care. One of my other associates uh, did an ocular disease residency and is similarly oriented. Whereas another one, similar to your wife, is a pediatric specialist. So she sees all the kids. She oversees our vision therapy department and working with our vision therapists. Uh, my wife does the low vision. And then we actually have uh, three part-time MDs who come into the office on a part-time basis. One is cornea fellowship trained, which is great for me and all of my keratoconic patients. Uh, the other is glaucoma fellowship trained. And honestly, Dave, secondary to doing the anterior segment in keratoconus irregular corneas, glaucoma is a huge part of our practice. Um, and the third one is probably one of the more interesting. It's an oculoplastic specialist. And I never realized yeah. 
how much oculoplastic work we all have in our practices. But when you have somebody to feed, all of a sudden you see all these things. So it's uh -huh. really amazing. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, as, as, as people are graduating optometry school and as, as people have started their first five or 10 years into, into practice, uh, many of us have this mindset of this is how we want to practice, right? This is, I, I like doing primary care, but I love the subspecialties. And I think that one of the unique things compared to some of the other colleagues that we work with is that you and I and Mila, we see everyday standard run of the mill minus two myopes and, you know, patients who are the plus two hyperopes who had perfect vision until they turned 40, right? And having those types of discussions. And that's really the bread and butter of who optometry is. But I think also, you know, many people, you know, 10 to 15% and it's growing are doing a residency and have this interest in doing these specialty types of things. How do we get there? You know, how, how, how is it that you and I have taken this primary care practice and have grown it? What kind of recommendations would you give to people in developing your practice to be a specialty practice. Yeah, and actually, I, I'm sure you've done the same. I've given lectures on this just based on my own experience. A little of it uh, is build it and they will come um, and getting out there. But um, the truth is you do have to have a, a sort of a foundation. My foundation was with in two phases. One was my ocular disease residency. And I believe honestly that a strong foundation in ocular disease goes hand in hand with specialty contact lens practice. Um, I've spoken many, many times that if you don't understand the disease, its diagnosis and management, fitting a contact lens only becomes uh, the activity of a technician. So we as more doctors and physicians, we have to understand the underlying disease and manage that as well as vision correction. Um, so having that experience, and then after my residency, when I was at SUNY, part-time, two half days a week, I actually was in private practice with a quote-unquote contact lens specialist in Manhattan, who really opened my eyes to the exciting world of specialty contacts, and I, mm -hmm. I learned so much. I, there were so many things that I learned under this gentleman's tutelage. His name is Fred Nevins, uh, still practicing, I believe, in, in Manhattan, a great guy, um, and I'd never realized all the things that I had such fear about when we learned it in optometry school, like bitoric lens fitting and things like that. <laughs> he simplified so many things to me and opened my eyes to the fact that don't be afraid of this stuff. Just jump in and do it. Then when I got into private practice, you know, I really connected a lot with ophthalmology locally. Uh, fortunately, I had some friends, you know, who were physicians and they introduced me to other ophthalmologists, we all became friendly uh, and we started into referring and one thing led to the other. And all of a sudden I have a contact lens specialty practice and uh, we start doing research, uh, doing studies. Then they ask you to go out and speak about it. All of a sudden you're lecturing. So these things kind of blossom from one thing to the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think you point out that the foundation is really a key and uh you know, for those that are listening that are currently in optometry school, uh, you know, I think both you and I would echo the importance of considering a residency as, as something. And people ask me, well, I can get that experience on my own. And yes, you can. Mila is a prime example of becoming a specialist without a residency. Uh, but in his first couple of years, he had to learn a lot and try to learn it with a small subgroup of patients 
where you and I, I think we would say we came out of our residency five or 10 years ahead of somebody who, uh, you know, would have would have tried to develop that same substructurally in a, in a right. primary I, care setting. I agree 100 percent. When I speak to our interns that rotate through the practice, one of the things I say to every one of them is it's going to be your decision coming up here if you want to be average or exceptional. It's your decision. And if you want to be exceptional, you have to figure a road to follow to make that happen. And one of the best ways is a residency, no doubt about it. It's concentrated. It's intense. And one of the most interesting aspects is confidence. And you probably know that. A person who's out one year without doing a residency and maybe worked in corporate or something like that, uh, their confidence level is nowhere near our confidence level after completing our residency. And I see that in my associates who have done residencies. For example, one of my associates is in her first year after ocular disease residency. She is amazingly confident and Mm -hmm. patients sense that. That's a critical element. Yeah. And I think, you know, not that, not that we don't all have experience with glaucoma and macular degeneration, especially if you did a, a, a rotation through a VA hospital. But I think that confidence because of the intense exposure over a year's long period. And I think that can also help to build that component of the practice so that you become a specialist faster. And by no means, you know, is, is Barry and I saying that without a residency, you can't become a specialist. So for those of you who didn't do a residency, but if, if you're going to have the opportunity to go back or even to consider doing one in the future, I think it's a, a great avenue to go. If you haven't done a residency, Barry, and you know you're not going to, what are some tips that you would give to people to develop into a specialist of some sort? Honestly, I think today it's easier than it had been in the past. I agree. So many resources out there. Let's take, you know, ocular surface disease as an example. My God, there's so many courses online. There's so many courses at meetings. Uh, There's so much information. Uh, And even industry is amazingly supportive in helping develop your understanding so it's just, I believe, compared to when I graduated, I'm significantly older than you. Um, my God, it's, it's, it's much easier, but you have to go out there and grab it. So, yeah. for example, you want to be a contact lens specialty person. What's one of the great meetings to go to is the Global Specialty Lens Symposium. This year was virtual, but you and I have been at it almost every year uh, yeah. in Vegas. And the amount of information that you can gain within a few days and the connections with people that you're going to meet. And everybody loves to mentor. That's one of the wonderful things about our profession. There are so many fabulous mentors out there who are willing to, to work with you. And I, I do that for other people. I get right. emails. I get phone calls. I have people come visit the office, just like I'm sure you do. Yeah. I think that's a real big key that we, uh, we need to keep in mind is, is seeing and hearing and learning the information is uh, is one thing, but also experiencing the patient type. And sometimes that means you just go for it, right? Sometimes that means you fit a patient with a scleral lens for the first time. And, you know, mentorship is a key component of that. And I think as you and I pointed out, we've done this with other people and, you know, we both have residents, so our practices are a little bit busy with mentorship. But find somebody who is doing a specialty lens uh, practice and 
ask them, hey, can I come and visit you for an afternoon? I'll take you out to lunch or buy you dinner. Uh, and uh, those those experiences of hands-on seeing somebody else doing it is a real big thing. And as we've previously pointed out in the Optometric Insights show, uh, our, our Stephanie Wu pointed this out, is the contact lens industry is so embracing of everybody and we welcome people in. And it's just been really, really helpful. Absolutely. No doubt. Yeah. That's a key factor. And, um, you know, uh, again, I think our profession, maybe better than most out there, uh, welcomes that. And yeah. I'm proud of that. Yeah. So now, Barry, you know, you mentioned something about research, and I love doing research. When when I left my residency, I was scared and I was discouraged that I was no longer going to be able to see specialty patients. I was no longer going to be able to teach, and I was no longer going to be able to do research. Going out into practice, those were the three things I was going to miss the most. And how wrong you were. <laughs> and how wrong I was, right? I get to do all three of them and I get to decide when to do them, right? So that's the beautiful thing about what you and I have built. But how do you get into doing research, right? You know, I hear about these research studies, but how do I get to start doing it if I've been in practice for five years, let's say? Well, for sure, if you don't have connections and you don't know somebody, because that's the easiest way, um, the best way is to reach out through industry, through your reps. Your reps can take it up the line to uh, to their research department, and they will ask for your CV, and they will ask for the kind of, like a practice description forms to fill out, and they'll put you on a list of potential sites. And I have to tell you, um, there are many research projects that folks like you and me have no interest in doing anymore. You know, we, we did them at the beginning. They were more yeah. basic. It doesn't really float our boat anymore. But the new person coming in, that you grab whatever you're given. You know, yeah. if it's a matter of like putting a spherical disposable lens on a patient, which might not be the most exciting thing, but it's a new design, even though, you know, how much new is it? But, uh, you know, you do it. You give them the information. Key element, make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's. Because these studies care about doing it clean. <laughs> it's the most important thing. If you break mm -hmm. protocol, you may never be asked again. So if That's you right. can get into it, really follow those protocols. Make sure those forms are filled out properly. Now they're all online. But that is probably the best way. I was fortunate because when I went into this private practice, even though it was a pretty much a meat and potatoes, very simple one, uh, the, the doctor... Uh, actually did clinical studies with Wesley Jessen, if those of you who remember that yep. company, uh, yeah. was here in Chicago. And so when I got in there, uh, that was my first experience in doing any kind of contact lens clinical studies. Then I met the people and one thing leads to the other. You meet other people and it grows and grows from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, ultimately ended up forming a company that does research, kind of organizes projects called the IBIS IM Vision Research Project, uh, along with a buddy of ours, Rob Davis, here in Chicago. Yep. Uh, and we will do and set up research studies for companies that don't want to do them internally. And that's that's been really fun as well. Yeah, it's a, it's it's been a huge uh, benefit to our industry, for sure, the, the projects that you've taken on. You know, you, you bring up the point of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Um, you know, research is not just something that you get into and you're automatically good at, like anything. You know, it takes some time. It's a new language. They have 
you know, forms that you have no idea what they are, you know, ICFs and, you know, uh, all these different uh, case report forms and all these different words that you and I have had no idea what were, but now they're part of our lingo. And that's an important part of just getting started and doing some projects and working with your reps and particularly the companies that you do a lot of business with. Uh, and, you know, drug studies are a little more complicated than contact lens studies, but getting started somewhere with reps and just talking with them, I think is a, a great recommendation for you. Barry, I want to talk about one more thing before we let you go uh, on this episode, and that is practicing with your significant other. Uh, tell us the, uh, the goods and the bads about uh, working for your wife. Yes, um, that is the most interesting. So as I mentioned, my wife is a low vision specialist. She has a diploma from the Academy of Optometry and low vision. And she was really awesome. She's been on staff at the Lighthouse for the Blind at Northwestern University. Now she's mm -hmm. kind of cut back and just uh, is here at our practice. The challenge is to separate your professional life from your personal life. Mm -hmm. So I have to be honest, we don't talk that much about shop at home. We try to, you know, kind of let it go. Well, yeah, it'll come up. It has to come up at times. But the key to success, my wife set the rules and I followed them. So <laughs> it's very simple. So when, uh, you know, we had kids and she pulled back a little bit from, um, from patient care at the office during the early years of the kids and she came back and she's, and I really wanted her back and really missed her. And she said, I will come back under this circumstance. Number one, you don't ask about my schedule. You, if I want to take a two-hour lunch to be with my girlfriends, I'm taking a two-hour lunch. Don't ask <laughs> me where I was, why I was out so long. Secondly, don't look at my billing. You don't like my billing? That's too bad. <laughs> I can't even see if she's really generating very much income. I have no idea. I don't look. My staff knows. They deal with her directly. Don't bring anything related to her to me because mm -hmm. it's none of my business. And that's mm -hmm. why we've been married for well over 30 years now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's kind of the that, that's kind of the partnership perspective. Right. You guys are business partners. And so what she's bringing to the practice is different than what you're bringing to the practice. And she's bringing some aspects into the practice that you don't bring. And so, you know, generation of revenue in a business is not always equal because of what each of us different brings, right? Somebody may be doing more CEO activities and not doing as much in the exam room, but does that person not bring as much to the practice? Well, maybe they're not generating the money, but they're running the practice, right? So I think that's that's with, with any partnership uh, specifically, right? But as you know, I think follow that, their rules and we'll be okay. That's right. That's right. And trying to limit work to work and home to home, right? That's uh, that's real key. Well, good, man. Hey, I thank you for being part of the Optometric Insights show. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of things uh, that uh, we can learn some more about. Uh, do you have any resources or recommendations uh, that you could give and we can leave in the show notes? Sure, absolutely. Um, the one thing we didn't have a chance to talk about, maybe I'll come back on the show another sure. time, is an organization that uh, I and a few others uh, began uh, about now six years ago called the International Keratoconus Academy of Eye Care Professionals. So our organization is compiled by ODs, MDs, other people in the eye care field who have a special interest in 
keratoconus, its diagnosis, its management. Um, everybody can join. There's no cost to join. So if you go to our website at www.keratoconusacademy.com, you can go to the subscribe page and there's a code for free subscription. You become part of our email listserv. You'll be able to get onto our social media. Um, we do talks, lectures. We also have been conducting a huge uh, pediatric prevalence study of keratoconus that's uh, results will be coming out over the next year. Uh, so there's a lot of exciting things going on and there's gonna be a lot coming out in 2021. So I encourage everybody Please go there, join the conversation. It's a great group of people. Excellent. Well, thank you again, uh, Barry Eiden, for joining us for this episode of the Optometric Insight Show. Uh, if you have not already done so, please make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments below, uh, questions or ideas for future episodes. And uh, we thank you joining, for joining us for this episode of the Optometric Insight Show. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody.